When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 89th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the invisible thumbprint. I'm joined by Mino Bopaya. She is the author of Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. The publisher is Barrett Kohler Publishers. Mino is the founder of Brevity and Wit. It's a strategy and design firm focused on DEI initiatives. She's written for the Stanford Social Innovation Review and the Hill.com, among her other activities and career accomplishments. Welcome to the show, Mino. Thank you so much, Dan, for having me. Looking forward to it. So normally I would ask you, you know, a brief overview of the book, but I think I want to level set on two key terms that you mentioned in the book and differentiate. So that would be naturally equality and equity and the difference between them. Sure. Um, very simply put, equality is when everyone gets the same thing. Equity is when people get what they need to thrive and participate fully, either in a society or in an organization. uh, Equity doesn't fault people for being different. Instead, it leverages difference for the greater good and um, embraces it. Now, that's not to say that equality is bad. There are times when we want equality, such as marriage equality, but there are times when we need equity in order for everyone to have equal access to opportunity. Okay. Fair enough. One of the things that was really striking for me in the book, I'd never heard it said quite this way. I thought it was, frankly, downright brilliant. You were talking about how we racialize people, and you said that in terms of indigenous people, Native Americans, for instance, we have done so subtractively. And in terms of African Americans or black people, we have done so expansively. Uh, that That's just amazing. I want to give you a chance to explain that a little bit more fully to listeners. Sure. Um, I should say that 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 language was paraphrased from an article by Lauren Williams, who's a designer. Um, So I want to give her full credit for really um, first putting that out there into the literature. But what we're talking about here is that indigenous people um, were, the laws were created to decimate them in that 
somebody claiming to be of a Native American tribe, they used to have this rule of like blood quantum levels, meaning were you fully or one half or one fourth or one sixteenth based on your ancestry, how many Native Americans were, you know, in your ancestral line to make you qualified to be considered an indigenous person of this land. And the reason they did that is because Article One of the Constitution guarantees um, health and human and social services for indigenous peoples in perpetuity. So by creating that law, it guarantees that the Native American population will eventually be decimated, if not extinct, which it hasn't. Indigenous people are still working and thriving in this country despite that sort of systemic oppression. On the flip side, however, when we looked at the Black American experience, particularly around slavery, um, this country made a law that said that if you had one drop of Negro blood, you were considered Black or a person of color. Or frankly, you were considered a Negro. That's the language they would have used back in those days. Back in the day, yeah. And so that allowed white plantation owners to expand their workforce and enslave their children, even though they're, you know, some of the, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Sally Hemings was actually the half sister of Thomas Jefferson's wife because she was the byproduct of Thomas Jefferson's father-in-law raping and impregnating one of his slaves. Wow, I did not know that particular angle of it. Okay. And so she's already half white. By the time she has children with Thomas Jefferson, they're even more white. But because they had one drop of Negro blood, he's able to enslave his children and uh, commit them to a life of bondage and sell them. Sure. I just think that is so succinct and so profound and really gets into what the book talks about, which is looking at the systems and therefore designing new and better systems that, you know, embrace fairness. I, I just, it's, it, it's, it, I've read so much on these issues, but it's amazingly succinct. <laughs> um, and in my case, my family's from North Dakota and on the state highway signs is actually the silhouette, not of Sitting Bull, for instance, but of the Indian policeman who killed Sitting Bull. Mm-hmm. That is what is memorialized. <laughs> And if that doesn't tell you a little something, then you're not paying attention. Yeah. So let's talk about how you design for equity, Um, because you have several points to make there. Um, There's three of them. In fact, I'm sure you have them memorialized because this is so (laughs) central what you've been doing for the last year plus. But if you can take us through them, I realize this might be a longer answer, but I think it's so central to what you're achieving or trying to help push along with this book. Yeah. Well, so what I first want to say is that we're talking about the system, but it's important to acknowledge that the system has been made invisible. You know, like we don't know these laws about indigenous people and black people for a reason, because if you disguise this, if you make it invisible, it's harder to change. And, um, you know, Mazarin Banaji talks about bias being the thumbprint of culture on the brain, but it's an invisible thumbprint that we don't see right? This bias is baked into the system, but then the system is made invisible. And so we can't detect it. So what I talk about, if we really want to advance equity, is three things that are, that are the preconditions that allow us to start to see the system. And those three things are, first, we have to 
learn how to be unafraid of differences, that the differences between individuals and the differences between groups are valued, not demonized and not minimized, right? That we're okay. We can, we can be different and that's not scary to us. Two, uh, people with power, particularly leaders, begin to see the system and how they can influence the system to create opportunity for others. And then the third thing is that in addition to that knowledge, there is the will to create more opportunity for others with their differences intact. Not by saying, oh, once you assimilate, then you'll have opportunity, but instead saying, no, you can come here with all your difference and we're still going to create opportunity for you. Yeah, no, you can be you and then you will be part of we, but you will still be a chance to be truly and fully you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting you mentioned invisible. I can think of an instance that is, to my mind, somewhat semi-invisible, the, the Federal Society and the push to get a certain cast of judges on the bench. Uh, because, if, of course, if we go back to the federal, you know, the origins of the country, uh, only certain people voted, for instance, and that was, of course, white people, white men mm -hmm. with property. Mm -hmm. And to go back and seemingly design a system to limit democracy, as it were, or deliver, uh, delineate who has power or opportunity to have voice um, really says a lot. There, there's a, uh, you said one of the central things that really holds us back is, is a key lie. And it has to do with rugged individualism, and you invoke Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something else I thought was was really interesting. I had not thought of it quite in that way before. Put all those pieces together, but you have, and uh, I'd like to have you share them with us. Sure. So the biggest obstacle often to um, policy change or societal change that advances equity and inclusion is this belief in the myth of rugged individualism. Specifically, the belief that we can all go it alone, um, that nothing other than our hard work leads to our success. Now, I'm not saying that hard work isn't an important part of success, but what I'm saying is that there, it is, the equation is a multivariable equation. It is hard work plus something else. And, I, and, you know, we just talked about how, you know, the only reason I was able to write this book during a pandemic is because... I'm married to a man who is a firefighter and paramedic and willing to do all of the housework while I write, right? Um, it is very hard if you're a single woman or if you're a woman without a supportive spouse or if you're a woman with children in the middle of a pandemic to write a book. And so my success is based on both my hard work and the fact that I'm married to somebody who's very supportive, right? Not everybody has that. More importantly- nope. Not everybody should have to have that. I shouldn't have to find a man to fall in love with me in order to write a book. <laughs> or like start a, like this is this should not be a precondition for my intellectual success, right? Um, and so what um, I'm what I try to get that with the and and, this, and part of this it was perpetuated by Joseph Campbell's stuff around the hero's journey and this solitary protagonist who has obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. Now, interestingly, there is a Harvard professor who just came out with a book called um, A Heroine with a Thousand Faces. That is about, ah, okay. yeah, <laughs> that's about women's stories and how they're told and the themes amongst women's stories. Uh, because Joseph Campbell admittedly was very negligent of women and basically said the job of women is to wait for the hero to arrive or to inspire them. And and that 
particularly that idea that the woman's job is to inspire a man to be great is part of misogyny. There's a great book called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by Kate Mann, who's a philosopher, who talks about how in a patriarchal misogynistic society, there are human beings and there are human givers. And it is a job of human givers to give of themselves so that the human beings can realize their humanity. And in um, in the, not only in a patriarchal society, but also in a white supremacist one, it is often the job of women and people of color to give so that white people and white men can be their full person. And the, you know, and the place actually you'll see this most is actually in Aaron Sorkin films. Like he cannot write a woman that is her, like, that is allowed to just be herself and be successful. Every woman he has ever portrayed is somehow in relationship to making a man great. Yeah, no, I, I, um, when I watch, uh, I sometimes watch Turner classic movies and one of the things that I have to go through is I, I see the opening credits and who the stars are. And invariably I'm like counting up and looking for how many women and how far do I have to go down the, the masthead, so to speak, before the first female name comes up. And uh, the, the proportions are so slanted, uh, it, it is just astonishing. And yes, it's not especially gone away. There has been some increase, certainly in, in female leads and so forth in Hollywood and elsewhere, but uh, a lot of work to be done still. You, you mentioned supremacists, and that's someplace I wanted to go next, because when you started talking about predatory capitalism mm. and taking more than one share mm -hmm. boy did my thoughts go to the uh the remuneration the the pay scales for executives and how they have ballooned uh in the last 40 years how are we going to get out of this what are some suggestions or solutions on on that front or however you want to take a question that's basically about predatory capitalism yeah. and the role of supremacy yeah so um you know, there are some people in the DEI space who are anti-capitalist. And um, while I understand how they're getting there, I'm not fully there, uh, mainly because my parents came to this country from India because it had a socialized economy at the time. I am of the belief that we actually need both. That, first of all, we do a bad job of conflating democracy and capitalism. They are not synonymous. You yeah. can have capitalism without democracy the way China and Russia and Turkey do, first of all. Secondly, an economic model is not the same as a governing model. So democracy is how we govern. And I do think that we need a combination of capitalism and socialism, in, as well as probably some additional innovative economic models um, to meet the challenges in front of our society. But predatory capitalism is an expression of supremacy power. So in the book, I talk about there's really two types of power. There's supremacy power, which is taking more than one share. And there's liberatory power, which is looking to use power in a way that's relational and heals people and, um, and is sustainable, right? The, the problem with predatory capitalism is that it actually logically doesn't make sense. Because the premise is is infinite growth you know that like year after year we should grow and this is like the bias this is the bias that's baked into the system we think scale is always a good thing and it's not 
because first of all, it leads us to biased behaviors where we think all individuals are the same when they're not, and that if we find a solution for one, we can scale it for all, which we can't. But more importantly, we clearly have run out of planet. Yes. (laughs) Like there is no more planet. So a more sustainable, like an economic model that works for humanity would have sustainability at its core value, not scale. And yeah, so- no, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Edward Abbey is one of my heroes, the naturalist, and he said, you know, growth for growth's sake is the logic of cancer. Yeah, exactly, right? It's cancer. That's what predatory gets. It's cancerous, right? It is eating away at us. And we really need to be able to say, like, this is not the form of capitalism that is going to help us as a as a human you know race like this is not going to help us at all and our ability to acknowledge that i think is the difference between whether we survive or not sure and and i would agree with your summation that we need you know capitalism socialism and whatever else can be engineered using ingenuity to get mm-hmm. there uh for instance i remember going to estonia and giving a speech and i asked someone so tell me about life under communism, but actually tell it to me in the form of a joke, because I think sometimes that could be more illuminating and certainly more fun. Mm-hmm. And the joke they told me was that the person goes to the afterlife and there's a capitalist hell and a socialist hell. And there's a really long line to get into the socialist hell. And the reason is, even though both hells have the same versions of torture, in the socialist hell, some days the rack doesn't work and some days they're out of boiling water, <laughs> which I, I thought was really funny. Let's let's move to something that I, you know, going more positively here, you're talking about seven behaviors of inclusive power. So we're really contrasting predatory behavior to inclusive behavior and power. Um, take me through, I mean, maybe all sevens more than we have time for here, but maybe touch on a couple, three of those that you think uh, you particularly uh, like or think are important. Sure. So these are from uh, Julie Diamond, who is a really great consultant uh, whose work I imagine, whose work I admire. And so the seven are empowerment, conflict competence, respect, fairness, approachability, discretion, and judiciousness. Now, I will say that as a DEI consultant, my absolute favorite one, the one that I gravitate, gravitate most towards is conflict competence. Because I think, you know, a real feature of white supremacy is having taught white people, uh, particularly white women, but I think all white people, particularly all like waspy Americans, that avoiding conflict is being polite. Because if you teach people that conflict is impolite, then they never raise issues. True. You make them complicit in the systems of white supremacy by saying that if you behave in a way that brings to light these problems, you're being badly behaved. Well, you you may not move to Minnesota because we have something here called Minnesota Nice Syndrome. Uh, We are Scandinavian. I'm half Scandinavian. We don't tend to surface issues. And we have, I believe, possibly the largest uh, racial household uh, asset gap in America. Yeah. And this is why. So if we really want to address these issues, all leaders need to have conflict competence. You need to be able to engage in conflict in a healthy way and resolve conflict in a healthy way. 
And a healthy way doesn't mean just like keeping a polite tone and then brushing things under the rug, right? It means being able to be in sticky, difficult conversations with one another. It means giving room for people to have different cultural expressions of conflict. You know, in some cultures, it's fine to like, you know, be emotional. That doesn't mean that you've lost control. And, you know, emotional expression is considered authentic. And sure. Well, I happened to have moved to Italy when I was six years old for two years. So that's, <laughs> you yeah. want to contrast to uh, Scandinavians, there you would have one of them. Yeah. So I think that like conflict competence is the 21st century leadership skill that everybody needs to gr- grapple with. And okay. then the other two that I'll talk about that I think are really great. Um, actually, I think like judiciousness, I think is really important because I think sometimes people misinterpret equity and inclusion, particularly inclusion, to mean that you have to make everyone happy. And that's not what it is. You want to create an environment where people feel welcomed and people feel respected and people feel like they can speak their mind with, you know, in an appropriate way without um, negative repercussions or retaliation. Yeah, some security. Yeah, Yeah. psychological safety. But that doesn't mean that everybody gets what they want. And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be happy all the time. And so leaders that are judicious understand that they have to also place the needs of the organization ahead of their own self-interest. So, and that means that like, if you, if you um, even have an ego that wants to people please, but people pleasing is not going to help your company because inclusion requires you to place the needs of the organization ahead of your ego, then you need to get over that. Right. Um, And so it's, it's really required, like holding leadership accountable for advancing the greater good rather than their own agenda or their personal needs. And I think most people miss that when they talk about equity and inclusion. They don't understand the role of judiciousness or discretion or wisdom in, you know, and like understanding that we're trying to move the whole thing. It's not just about your interpersonal relationships. Sure. No, that's actually one of my pet peeves, quite honestly, because I've seen too often where leaders are, you know, just genuflecting to their own comfort level mm-hmm. and comfort spot. And it's not what the organization needs. It actually needs to make progress, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's inclusion and innovation, uh, whatever, whatever the agenda item. Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a third one. Uh, a third one I would bring up is fairness, because that's really what equity is about. So that's my jam. Right. I already sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's like just being fair in judgment you know, and, and fair in how you set up your system and, and being aware of your own personal biases and how that uh, influences the choices and the decisions you make. That's really important because none of us are really fully unbiased, but what we can be is aware of our own biases so that we know how it informs our judgment and we know when to either check ourselves to get somebody else's opinion or even when to bench ourselves, when we know that we're not the right person because, you know, because of our biases, and that's okay. Okay. Um, no, I, fairness is a, is a huge and important word. Absolutely. Um, I want to go, I, you know, I've read a lot of business books and I've read a lot of books on DEI at this point. Uh, I think your book is is tremendous, by the way. Uh, I, I love uh, its, its perceptiveness 
and its incisiveness. And I also love that you get some places that not all these kinds of books get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I've, I've rarely seen a critique or taking on nonprofits and the question of where their <laughs> monies come from and, and what kind of limitations that might make on how they behave and their thought processes. So I, I want to give you a chance to explore that out loud for listeners a bit. <laughs> you want to get me into trouble, don't you, Dan? Um, uh, well, I, I can be a dangerous man. Yes, da- dangerous Dan is one of those board game characters, if you might recall. Um, so, what I have worked for a number of nonprofits, and I think there's this um, there's this big myth, I think, out there that somehow being non for pro- not for profit or nonprofit automatically makes you more virtuous than anybody that's for profit. And I contest that, given what I've seen in the nonprofit space. I have seen uh, nonprofits use money in supremacist ways to divide, control, or or exploit people. And I have seen for-profit businesses, particularly small to medium-sized ones, use money in order to build community and to treat people with compassion and care, both inside the organization and outside. So I refuse to deify nonprofits simply because of the economic model that they have chosen. My question is, what are you going to do with the money you have, whether it's a small amount or a large amount, right? And so I think nonprofits need to really look at themselves because simply being a nonprofit doesn't automatically make you more democratic or more equitable. Um, That comes from really the hard work of designing a system or an an organization or an institution that can treat people that way. And because bias and inequity has been baked into our society, it means going against the grain at some really fundamental levels. And so one of those is the practice of philanthropy. And, you know, Edgar Villanueva in his book, Decolonizing Wealth, you know, riffs on this for a lot longer and a lot more um, incisively than I can. But Philanthropy was basically created um, when, you know, robber barons like the, you know, Carnegie's and the Rockefellers wanted to whitewash the money that they had gotten that they weren't paying adequate taxes on. And so they created this institution, you know, they they made these huge philanthropic donations to these institutions. They created foundations um, that would continue to hoard their wealth under their control and just give away 5% per year, which is peanuts of what they actually own. And then they often put their white wives in charge of these nonprofits. And these are- Or their their nieces or nephews who can't otherwise get employment. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they could be employed. I I don't even, like, that's not even my concern. What my concern is, is that- they then created this myth of a nonprofit salary not being as much as a for-profit one, mainly because it was people who didn't need the salary. True. And so now when nonprofits want to diversify, they're like, well, you know, we want to diversify, but like there's so few candidates. I was like, of course there are, because people of color on average don't have as much wealth as white people and can't afford to take this job at this salary. And why are you paying this salary anyway? Are you trying to say that do that I have to pay out in order to do good. If we created an economic model where people were paid well for doing things that actually benefited society, more people would go into jobs that benefited society. 
Yeah. So nope. The nonprofit model is to blame for the fact that we have incentivized people to go take jobs that are destructive to our environment and to our society. Yeah, well, there's a there's a wonderful book written actually way back in the mid 1960s by someone who had been a, a journalist and then uh, joined the faculty at at, at Columbia University called the the rich and the super rich, mm. and it has a couple of really incisive good chapters on foundations. You might find it of interest at some point. I'll just yeah. mention that to you in turn. Uh, I also confess at this point that I had worked in the development department briefly of an orchestra in the country. So um, I know a bit about what you're talking about. The The last thing I wanted to get to before we run out of time here, this, there's much more we could get to, but I've also in DEI rarely come across a book that really took on seriously the fact that 19% of the population has a disability. Yeah, And that when we open this lens up to who struggles, who has disadvantages, who, who needs yeah. uh, more empathy, awareness of the struggles, uh, I've rarely seen a book on this topic that goes there. But you did. And I commend you for that. And I wanted you, before we run out of time here, to be able to talk to that as well. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was really instilled in me by my mentor, Janetta Betch-Cole, who wrote the foreword for the book. And and she will claim that that was instilled by her through her relationship with Deb Daggett, who is a wonderful disability rights advocate and the former chief diversity officer at Merck. Um, but it's also because I have a background in clinical psych and I um, spent some time in that area and realized that physical and mental disabilities are really not accommodated adequately in our society. It's also because Brevity and Wit does a lot of work in graphic design um, and digital design and um, websites. And accessibility is a real problem as we move to an internet-based society. 90 to 95% of the web is not accessible for people with disabilities which should be criminal and is starting to become criminal as the lawsuits um, start to get filed. But we are missing out on a huge um, part of our population that actually has also been known to be the most creative and innovative. You know, text messaging was invented for the deaf and hard of hearing, and now we all use it. Audiobooks were originally intended for the blind, and now we all use them, you know. There are so many things that we owe because someone decided to innovate um, or a disabled person themselves found a solution that was more innovative than what we have previous, what had previously existed. And so I think we lose out on creativity and innovation when we don't include people with various disabilities in our work. Sure. Well, some of the most creative people I've known in my life were dyslexic or are dyslexic. Mm -hmm. And they have worked with that and worked through that and beyond that uh, in ways that have really impressed me. So I want to thank you so much, Meenal. Uh, this has been episode number 88. Uh, the topic is officially the invisible thumbprint. Uh, Meenal is the author of Equity, How to Design Organizations Where Everyone Thrives. I heartily commend this book. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Uh, you can find other episodes at my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or on the New Books Network. Type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight and you will get there. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I came across one from John Lewis, 
that I thought was kind of a nice fit. He's, of course, the former congressman who's now passed away and civil rights leader who said, we must be headlights, not taillights. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. (laughs) 